You are listening to the Rooted Ministry Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered ministry to youth. This episode was recorded at a workshop session at our 2018 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about Rooted, visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. When a good desire becomes a false god. That's an intriguing title, is it not? Um, I had a coffee with a friend not too long ago. And um, she was really distraught because um, her son, um, I don't know, he was maybe late elementary school. Um, He was really full of a lot of uh, performance anxiety. Um, which was manifesting itself in um, just not sleeping well, but also uh, meltdowns. Whenever he would encounter an obstacle um, that uh, he didn't do pretty well at, he just collapsed. And uh, she described a recent softball game. Um, she wasn't at, but her, her husband um, had taken him there um, because he was a really good player, and so he was on this all-star team. And they were in a tournament, and in the final game of the tournament, um, he began performing pretty poorly. And he almost struck out, but last second he got to first base. But just as he got to first base, the ball got there first. And so he was out. And to his dad's complete and utter horror, he uh, just kind of collapsed right there um, at the base, lay down, and just cried. And though his coach tried uh, his best to console the child, wouldn't work. And um, finally, the dad had to get up out of the stands, come down, get the child, and take the child off the field and home. Uh, the father was furious. And he spent a lot of time um, communicating uh, that fury to his child. Um, but it, it didn't even stop there, um, she said, because just the, the le- next several days, he was just, his anger just continued to smolder. His frustration just continued to smolder, smolder, and he just, it just kind of filled up the whole house. You know what I'm talking about. You know, for other people, I'm sure you've heard. But anyway, so, so she asked me if I would be willing to see him. And so I said, well, you know, sure, yes, because you know what? I totally get that. Totally get that, that that Romans 7 parenting, when you say the things that you don't mean to say and you don't say the things that you do mean to say, oh, wretched parent that I am, who will rescue me? Yes. So I totally get that. So I say, oh, yes, yes, I, I get it. I get it. Because, you know, this is the thing. We all carry in our minds pictures, pictures of the way that we desire life to be. Those pictures are made up of two things. Number one, people, even ourselves. And two, circumstances. So the father, he told me when he did come in, he told me exactly what his picture was. He said, um, I want my son to be confident and I want him to give it 100% at all times and I want him to enjoy it. Now, I want to say there's nothing wrong with his father's desire. Absolutely nothing wrong with the picture that this father had in his mind of what he desired for his child on that day. But when the reality of life does not match 
the picture in my head, I go a little out of my head, saying and doing things that I don't want to do, which, by the way, you know the definition of crazy. It's a sharp departure from normal or desired behavior. So Romans 7 is a description of crazy. It's what I do when I get confronted with the fact that I cannot control my world to fit into my picture um, of how I want it to be, despite my best effort. Despite the fact that I came to the Rooted Conference and I took notes, A plus B did not equal C, the way the books said it would, the way my small group promised it might. A plus B, it didn't equal C because God will not be contained in my picture. No matter how good my picture my desire may be to me. And I really think that at that moment, right there, that's the true coming of age of believers. I know we usually think that the coming of age of believers is when they go off to college. I think the true coming of age of believers is when the picture that you had in your mind does not turn out to be. And sometimes it's significantly later than college. That is actually when people generally come to see me, like this man did. In 20 years of practice as a counselor, I have sat with many a believer with um, destroyed pictures or sitting very far out of the picture as they would desire it to be. The direction that we turn for hope will be determined at that point largely on the identity that we live out of. Not the identity that we have, the identity that we live out of. The gospel gives us a new status, that status of sons and daughters, but it often takes a long time. That's the process of sanctification to learn to be who we really are. I had a friend who adopted a child from a third world country. And when the child came to the States, she was officially adopted. She had a new name. And yet, that new name had not caught up to that child's behavior. The child was used to being an orphan and used to living in an orphanage. So even though she now had this new name, she continued to act as if she was an orphan. She would hoard food. She would not allow herself to be touched. She would never make eye contact because no one could be trusted. See, you and I, we were were raised in orphanages too. And now we have this new name. And somehow we think, Zap, you're a daughter. How are you going to live like a daughter? It's not exactly the way it happens. But please remember this. The father does not look at you, just like this father did not look at this little girl and say, how could, after all I have done for you, I went all the way over there, spent all that time, spent all this money, and this, this is the way you treat me after I have given you my name? So much of the time, that is exactly the way we view God. His response to his little girl is, I know. 
You've been an orphan for a long time. I'm your dad. And I'm going to show you, I am trustworthy. And he is not angry when we hold on tight to those pictures. My client, um, the clients that I tend to see um, are overwhelmingly believers. I counsel right in the buckle of the Bible belt. Um, Many of my clients are from what I would consider to be very, very solid gospel preaching churches, and uh, they can share the gospel. But in terms of the gospel truly changing the way that they live, there tends to be what I would say a bit of a disconnect See, again, you know, that gospel, it it gives us that new status. But then we have to learn how to live out of that status. And one of the biggest ways that we're going to see how that happens, which is why I love my job so much, is when we're confronted with the fact that this is what I long for, this is my picture, and this is my reality, which is way far out of my picture. Now you're holding, oh, actually y'all aren't. Somewhere floating around here is a chart. Because I'm a visual learner, um, I chart stuff out to remember it. Um, So I'm just going to chart out for you. When you are faced with a gap between what it is that you long for and what it is that you're actually facing... What identity do you take on? Because what we're really talking about here is unbelief, specifically in the gospel, versus belief. I am not talking right here about saving faith. Right here what I'm talking about is how I identify myself, whether or not I'm living out of my identity of a son or a daughter belief or out of unbelief. First of all, uh, in unbelief, Living out my identity as an orphan. Isaiah 30, 15 and 16 says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none out of it. You said we will ride off on swift horses. What are your swift horses? What are those things that you turn to automatically to make life work when it's falling apart, to get people and circumstances back into the picture as you desire them to be? Well, I very quickly learned what these dads, this dad's swift horse was. Now again, remember, I was excited because dad was coming to see me, and um, I, I get that he must have been feeling really, really, really badly about his behavior. And, and he was coming to see me to say, essentially, oh, wretched man that I am. Um, so he came in and he sat down and I said, how can I help you? Which really wasn't true because I kind of already knew what he was going to ask me. Um, well, you know what he said? I'm not, uh, this is a quote. I need some strategies. My son has got a lot of anxiety. I got to help him with that. I need some strategies for that. I've Googled performance anxiety, 
I've, I've, uh, I've done some stuff. I've written some affirmations, positive affirmations on a card. I've given them to him. I've told him to carry them around. Uh, yeah, he lost them. It's not working. So I am here, Julie, for some strategies. Well, um, so the first thing I asked was, okay, well, what are we going for? Basically, what I was saying is, what's your picture? And again, he described, I want him happy, healthy, successful, confident, giving 100%. I want to remind you, I counsel in the heart of the Bible Belt, and I know, because his wife was my friend, I know I'm sitting in front of a man that's a believer. Now, here's what I love about this dad's answer, and here's why I included it here. Because I know when I say that kind of stuff in a seminar like this, you're going, oh, mm -mm, no, no, no. We are called, and our picture is to raise children of God. See what I love about this man? He gave me the unedited answer. And I'll be honest, he gave me the one that I think most of us run off of. So I really appreciated his honesty. But at the same time, I was really asking Jesus, did he not read my bio? (laughs) I'm not a strategy girl. Um, So, of course, the the first thing I said is, well, if I had any strategies, that'd be the last thing on earth I would tell you. Which, of course, got his attention. But um, because you see what had happened is his good picture had turned into an idol. What do I mean by that? Well, his picture is what he was looking to to determine his course of action. His picture, in essence, was what he was obeying. His picture, inadvertently, his good desire had become a very wicked God. And what he was coming to me for, which is what all of my clients, okay, that's an overgeneralization. Many of my clients have two ways that they respond to um, the loss of their picture. Number one, teach me how to live without it. Because it's, 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 it's stupid, it's wrong, it's never going to happen anyway. So just, you know, my husband's never going to change. I know i got to stay married, so how do I do it? That's a lot of fun. Um, but, okay, shuts down. Or, or, or they'll say, you know, I know, I, I know uh, Jesus is my best friend, and it doesn't matter if I'm not married. It, it doesn't matter at all. But it does. That's not faith. That's numbing. And our God, I don't get it. But he doesn't want to teach us to suppress or ignore desire. Which 
honest goodness, sometimes I wish I could erase desire. I wish I could erase longing because it hurts. But when I am willing to hold the longing in a broken world, in that case, right there, I am sharing in the suffering of Christ, and that makes me poor in spirit. I see the kingdom of God. So faith is not to suppress. It's to own my longing. It's to know my picture. Listen, you need to know your pictures. And I don't mean, like, whenever I say, well, that's your picture, they roll their, I know, it's my picture, I know I shouldn't have expectations like that. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that. Pictures are not wrong. As a matter of fact, most of the things in your picture you can trace right back to your design in the Garden of Eden where you were designed to relate to others naked and unashamed and you were designed to live in a world where you would have dominion. And you wouldn't have to have a leaf blower where the environment works against you. That was your design, and that's why you now experience it as a desire, because now we live in a post-fall world, but we still have pre-fall design, which sets us up for longing. What do you do with it? So you'll notice the first, if we adopt, if it is to be, it's up to me, which is the orphan motto. If it is to be, it's up to me. If we adopt that... Some of us will feel very good about it, but some of us will feel very, very bad about that. Those are who I call the victim. Now, you see underneath there, a victim is disengaged, passive, cynical, hardened heart. I once did a group for marriage, uh, and this woman, after the second, third time, she came to me, uh, she said, I, I'm not going to be in the group anymore. And I said, okay, tell me a little bit about that. And she said, I don't like what this is doing. This is, my marriage will never be this. So I don't want to hear about this anymore. Because it hurt too much. What she was doing right there is hardening our heart, shutting it down. Same thing. Women who think that the best way to help their husbands do what? Lead the home is to buy them another book or to send them to another conference. Can I tell you, according to my husband, um, if you've been in the evangelical world longer than a month and a half, you've gotten plenty of sermons on how to be a good father, a good husband. As a matter of fact, he says to me, why is it that on Mother's Day you guys get flowers? On Father's Day, we get a sermon on what we should be doing as a father. This is the truth. So this is the, if the man has been in the evangelical church, can I just tell you that's probably not what the problem is? It's not a problem of information. But if he got that information and he thinks it's up to him, he tries. Maybe he joins a group, you know, an accountability group. You know what an accountability group does. An accountability group, they make you do what you don't want to do. It is so straight from the pit of hell. In the world of the gospel, an accountability group reminds you what it is that you most deeply want to do and goes with you to get there. 
But when he has given up and he shuts down and he looks like he's passive, you see behind the passivity is despair. And let me just say, he's right. My husband went to promise keepers like, I don't know, 45 times. On the 45th time, he would always come home. Pumped, pumped, pumped. I remember him telling me one time, Julie, I will lead this home. And I was just like, Shekinah glory. Yes, (laughs) yes. Okay, and then uh, two months later, I realized I could make, I, I could put all three of my kids through college if I just wrote a curriculum on for wives whose husbands had gone through promise keepers uh, and they had made promises and now they're dealing with the reality of that. Now, can I just say, it was not the material. They held up a beautiful standard. It was beautiful. It was good and it was right. On the 45th time my husband got it, this is what happened. He came home and he said, well, you know what? I can't do it. Bingo. Now we're ready for the other side, but we're not going to go there for just a moment. If he hadn't gotten there, he would just find himself another group or make certain that next year he was doing something other than going to yet another conference. So that's what you do with, when you're a victim. A victim looks like perhaps a, quote, low self-image. Um, there's nothing different between a low self-image and an extremely high self-image. No difference. It's two sides of the same coin. The coin is self. The point is my own performance. If I'm performing well, I have a, quote, positive self-image. If I'm performing poorly, I have a negative self-image, but the point is self. And can I just say, that's insanity. (laughs) Um, A low self-image... Now, I'm going to say this because, you know, it's getting kind of late and so you have to start saying interesting things. But to quote the the famous theologian, Cloris Leachman, in the classic movie, Spanglish, (laughs) Tia Leone was her daughter. She was having an affair. Cloris Leachman was a recovering alcoholic. She knew about the affair. So she confronts the daughter about the affair. Tia Leone says, well, you know, Mom, maybe I wouldn't be such a screw-up if I hadn't had you for a mother. Cloris Leachman says the most beautiful line. She said, honey, sometimes your poor self-image is just good, plain, common sense. You see, the truth is, if it's about us, we're in a lot of trouble. Please stop helping people improve their self-image. They're right. They're right. You see, this father, he wanted his, his son to feel good about himself, to feel good about himself. And I said to the dad, but he's right. The father was like, excuse me, are you a counselor? Where did you get your degree from? He is right. What did Paul mean when he said, wretched man that I am? You see, if we don't let our kids ask that question and get to that point, we're never going to get to the next question, which is, who will rescue me? Which brings us to the hope of the gospel. 
Thanks be to Christ. Don't teach your kid to have a positive self-image. Teach your kid, thank God. Thank God. It isn't about you. You'd be so in trouble if it were. So would I. It's a little radical, but it is true. (laughs) Now, uh, now this dad had taken on the role of the resolver, right? He felt good about himself and he wanted his kid to feel good about himself because that's what we're going to do. We're going to give the hope that we have. He had a very positive self-image. It was given to him by his parents who told him that he could do everything and anything. And FYI, they should. He should. But he was glad that he hadn't passed that on to his son. So, you know where we went. But if we take on the resolver role, we're going to become a corraller and a controller because you see, here's the point, that child needed to get into that picture. Because he said it under his breath, I asked him to repeat it, but he did. He said, what have I done wrong? You see, if my child's not in my picture, if I don't get my picture, then who am I? Once again, that's when a good desire becomes a wicked God. It becomes that which I define myself by and also, by the way, that which I define the goodness of God by in proximity. God is good. God is faithful when he answers my prayer. Do you know how many times I hear that? Oh, God answered our prayer. And you know what that means in Christendom? That always means God got right in that picture. God answered your prayer. In or out of the picture. Our hope, if it's in the picture, is doomed to fail. And we will be wrought and fraught with anxiety because even if we get in the picture, you realize every single thing in the picture is temporal. Every single thing. There's not one thing that you have in your picture that isn't temporal. Which means that even when you're right in the moment of enjoying your picture, which there are moments, there are moments when, what can I say, the stars align and you're there. You know, moments when you feel like, oh, I just want to freeze frame. This is so good. Cameron had one of those moments last night. At the dinner table, he said, this is so good. I love being with you guys. We have good food. We have good drink. And we have good friends. This is beautiful. And he's tasting a little bit of heaven. And it's beautiful. But it ends. And if we live our lives for that moment right there, even when we're in that moment, we have anxiety in our gut because we know any second we can be out of that moment. That picture is not the place where we can rest. Which brings us to the other part. We have the invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if, if you're an experienced Christian, if you've been in the Christian culture for a while, you know that this is one of those verses that you do this. You close your eyes, you tilt your head slightly back, and you go, mmm. Yeah, that's what you do. Um, because this is one of those those balm verses, right? And so you're, oh, yes, oh, yes. I want to warn you, if you're doing that, it probably means that you don't really understand the verse. Because you see, this verse, it's not an open invitation. This verse is directed to the weary. Oh, I'm weary. I am weary. I am weary. I have tried all. Oh, believe me, I am weary. Yes, that's why I'm here. Do you have a strategy? Because I am weary. (laughs) Weary means done, finished. My hair is tired. I have tried everything and I am bereft. I am despairing. If you don't come through, it's over. Oh, that we would teach our children to get to those moments so much earlier than you and I did. But instead, we rescue them. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I will. I will write your teacher. I will get you out of that class. I will get you a tutor. Be careful that you are soothing what God is seeking to disrupt. See, that's why I say, you understand, though the father asked me, all I'm thinking is that the mother did not explain me too well, but when he asked me for a strategy, do you know that the worst thing I could have done was to give him one? Because what I would be doing there is making certain that he didn't feel his hunger and his thirst for God. And I'm working counter to what I'm called to. Oh, but wait a minute. What are you called to? Oh, you better define that. Because if you don't define that, you might get a little mixed up and think you're called to making people feel better. Well, you know not. You know, you know that. I know, I know, I know. Would you listen to your conversation in the last small group? When someone said, I've got this coming. I'm really scared. I don't feel prepared. Come on now. Average small group. What are you going to get told? You're fine. You can do it. You know how I know you can do it? Because you do that all the time. You are. You do that all the time. Oh, you are good, girl. You can do it. Climb right back up on that performance pony. <laughs> yeah, we're going to pray you through it. But even that, generally, though, generally when I say I'm scared, it's like I'm fishing. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm good. And so I always say this before I ever say anything about my fear about speaking. 
I'm not fishing. I'm scared. Please don't tell me I do this all the time and I'm going to be good. Because you know what that makes me feel? Alone. I can't see the Father right now. Don't you understand? Remind me. Remind me what? That I'm good? Oh, mercy no. Don't you understand? That's the problem I have. Tell me. Oh, you are right. I know you, girl. Oh, yeah. You are right. Going down Highway 280. On your way to the conference. I know you. Oh, thank God. It is not about you, Julie. See what you just did. You just took it right off my back. When the Father says, Come, if you're going to get up under the yoke of Christ, what that means is you have to get rid of your own. And what I mean by that is your strategies. What is that? Your way of making life work apart from God. Also defined as sin. If it's how you make your work, life work apart from God, it's sin. It's a dis, if it's the same, if it's a discipline of grace, it's obedience. I can't define that for you. Now, um, when the Father says, "Repent." It's not repent of what you did. It's repent of what you believe that caused you to do what you did. Because against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in the sight, in your sight. Well, why did David say that? Why didn't he talk about, hello, it was like he was pretty sinful against Uriah. He sinned against Why doesn't he talk about that? Because sin is always relational. Relational between who? You and God. You sin because of what you are believing about the gospel in that moment. And if we were to narrow down, if you will, the gospel, and I say that, I want you to understand pragmatically what does that mean? Well, it means two things. Number one, Christ is now my righteousness. I don't have to fight for it anymore. I don't have to work it into conversations. I don't have to lie and tell you that the reason I was late is because the traffic was bad. See, that's a lie. You know why I do it? Because for that moment, I don't want the righteousness of Christ. I want my own righteousness. My own righteousness looks pretty bad, and so I lie to get it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what do I need to repent of? I need to repent in that moment. First of all, Father, I lied, and I lied because I wanted my own righteousness. I did not want yours. And if I want my own righteousness, I will do anything including and up to lying to get it. Second tenet of the gospel. I am now a son. I am now a daughter of the king, and I have everything I need, everything I need for life and godliness. We ended the session. I mean, a lot happened between... You know, but we did end up getting to the, in the end of the session where I said, I, I, I would love it if you would please go home and repent. Repent of how you have sought 
to find life from your picture. And in doing so, harmed your child, yeah. But you harmed your child because your child's performance had taken your own righteousness. He looked bad. He was embarrassed. Because he was embarrassed, he was furious. So what is the sin? The way he treated his child? Yes. But it's worse than that. He treated his child the way he treated his child because of two things. Number one, he was fighting for his righteousness. And number two, he believed fundamentally that he was alone and he did not know what to do with this child. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do. He was so frustrated because he forgot the second tenet of the gospel, that he has everything he needs for life and godliness from the Father. So to come means to leave behind the yoke, the way that I've been doing life. Moving on to take his yoke is to become aware that I am never out of God's picture. I'm out of mine, but I'm never out of his. And so here's the thing. This is what is always true. He is in this this awful situation where my child is crying on the field. He's in it. How do I know he's in it? Because it happened. If it happened, he allowed it. Oh, now, come on now. No, I did this. I married the wrong man. That's why I'm in the wrong place. Okay, okay. And where was Jesus when you were marrying the wrong man? Is he in the corner wringing his hands with his arms crossed saying look what you've done please hear me I'm not saying I am not saying I am not saying that you do not need to repent and you are not responsible for every single choice you make before God this father was responsible yes for his sin against his daughter yes and he had to repent of that and he had to repent before his daughter that said Even that event that happened, I'm sorry, to his son. Dealing with dad's wrath. Even that got allowed into that child's life. Which I ask God all the time. Why did did you give this sweet little girl, not this one because she's not so sweet, but this sweet little girl, a mother like this. I'm a bull in a china shop. I'm going to crush this kid. Why? Why did you do this? He knew what he was doing. And number two, he is in me. I have everything I need to raise a little girl who came out of the womb saying, how can I please you? Which, by the way, is what this son kept saying. To dad, I just want to make him proud. I just want to make him proud. Oh, what is God doing? He is in this. And that's when we take his yoke, we're getting up underneath that. Uh, I thought I only had three minutes. Oh, I have ten minutes. Oh, okay. Um, So I'm coming up under his yoke which means that I'm taking on life through the glasses of 
he is in this and he is in me. If that is true, and I am out of my picture, way out of my picture, I am very curious. If he's in this, what's he doing? You see, that's your question when you're sitting with someone and they're telling you their stuff. That's what I did with that dad on that day. Literally said to him, I'm sitting here right next to you and wondering, what's Jesus up to? I'll tell you what I don't think he's up to. I don't think he's up to finding you a new strategy so you can get your kid performing better. I don't think he's up to that. That's I don't know that. I don't know the mind of God, but you know the scripture kind of makes one thing clear. And that is what he is always up to is his glory. And I said, I don't know what your thinking success would look like, but I can tell you what I long for. I long for your son to learn how to fail. You see, you think your job is to teach your son how to succeed. But if the scripture says our job is to point them to Jesus, then I believe that our job is to teach our children how not to succeed. But what do you do when you fail? Because can I just tell you, uh, people come into my office not because they didn't have parents that taught them to succeed. People come into my office because they don't know how to fail. The gospel is for sinners. If we are going to give the gospel to our family, you need to be the chief sinner slash repenter. What might the glory of God look like? It might look like this incredibly competent, sharp, strong, smart dad that always has the answer to every single question and just wants his son to learn to do the same thing, just like his father did. What if he went home and said, I am so sorry. Because on that day, I wanted you to make me look good. And Jesus died so that I don't have to do that junk anymore. And for that moment and on that day, I completely forgot the reality of the gospel. And that's why I did what I did. And I sinned against you and I am sorry. I don't know that that little boy would have any idea what to do with that dad. But that's a dad that's owning his brokenness, pointing to Jesus. And my sense is, that's a dad that's doing what it is that he's called to do. Because ultimately, fundamentally, when I ask that father, what are you after? Here's what he, quote, should have said. The glory of God, by the way, I respond to this situation. That's what I'm after. What does the glory of God look like? Not, 
what does a fulfilled picture look like? And that's the glory of God. People say that to me all the time. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yes, yes. You don't think I would get glory if he was healed? That's what I'm praying. Yes, I want the glory of God. I want my marriage healed. I want the cancer gone. I know what the glory of God looks like. Oh, I wish that were true. I don't know what the glory of God looks like. Accept me coming up under his yoke and being willing to learn from him. Which is the next step. As we commune with the Father. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about having a quiet time alone there. I'm talking about having a communion time. I got five extra minutes. Oh, okay. the, the big man said. Okay. Four. Um, Learn from him. Um, As we delight in him, he gives us the desires of our heart, which means he molds our heart as we spend time with him. And the first place where that shows up is our prayers change from what do I do now to what are you doing? I think that's the first place that shows up when we start hanging out with Jesus. When we learn. This is where we are putting in the exercise of the spiritual discipline of prayer, being in worship, being in a church body that preaches the word, being in the word yourself, exercising the spiritual disciplines. Why? As a means of learning Jesus. Not as a means of gaining the approval of Jesus, but because we already have that. Now we want to learn Jesus. Going back to the illustration of the adopted father, how does she learn to trust her father? She learns his character by spending time with him. And finally, to rest. Now see, that's where he really took game with me. That's a, he said. You know, I, he said, I'll just, I'll tell you, I've never really told anybody that this, but this is what bothers me. What does that mean? That I'm just supposed to pray about it and it'll all work out? No, no, no. I hear that all the time. What does it mean to rest? Oswald Chambers, speaking of this verse right here, he says, Jesus is saying to us, I will give you rest. I will stay you, support you from sinking, and sustain you with strength. Not, I will put you to bed and hold your hand and sing you to sleep. But I will get you out of bed and out of the state of being half dead while you are alive. I will imbue you with the spirit of life, and you will be stayed by the perfection of vital activity. In other words, if you take the pressure off my back, thank God it is not about you. You know what I want to do? I don't want to sit down. I want to run. I want to pursue holiness more. I have been energized. And not only that, I have learned I've got this incredible deal. And people all around me, by the way, I'm talking about the church, they don't know it. (laughs) Or they forgot it. And I want to remind them, you know your deepest desire to glorify God, the one you have now, because of what Christ did for you, not because, I'm not saying that because I'm looking at your performance, you seem like a nice girl and look at all you're doing, no. The word says your deepest desire, because you are a redeemed woman, is now to glorify God by the way you respond to each and every situation he allows. That's it. And my desire, 
is to remind you of that. And your desire is to go teach it. Start with yourself first. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast, where we hope to communicate the truths of the gospel and apply those truths to youth ministry. We would love for you to check out our website where we publish articles daily geared towards both youth ministers and parents. You will also find resources and more information about our conferences, regional events, and more at www.rootedministry.com.